When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Back on the College Football Survivor Show, a little later this week, we wanted things to sort of sort themselves out from SEC meetings, Shahan. We have a lot of topics we want to cover. We're trying to think like conference commissioners, because frankly, we're qualified. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. We could run a conference tomorrow. Maybe not alone, but together we would be a powerhouse. Co-commissioners, if we were running a conference, what would we do with some of these issues? What, you know, the SEC is in the news, but we're going to think maybe it will apply to the Big 12 or the Pac-12 or the Big 10. Multiple conferences. And the first thing, Chahan, is how many conference games would we want our conference to play? This is with a major issue at the SEC meetings, they decided that in 2024, they play eight conference games right now. Most of the other conferences play nine. They play eight. In 2023, they're going to play eight. They decided they're still going to play eight conference games in 2024 when Texas and Oklahoma come in. And then they'll think about moving to nine conference games later down the line. It sounds like they want more money out of ESPN if they're going to provide you know, that many extra conference games, but there's also a lot of other considerations. They're getting a lot of flack for this, Shahan. Commissioner Shahan. Commissioner Jay, what what like what would you go by? <laughs> Commish, what should we call you? I I don't know. Uh <laughs> Commissioner Shahan works just fine. Works Commissioner Shahan. Commissioner Shahan, guide us how many conference games should our conference play to maximize the teams, the programs, and don't forget the fan experience. So one thing that's come out of this has been the talk about pathway to the playoff. And I just have to say, if you're the SEC, because let's just talk specifically about this from the SEC's perspective, that's irrelevant. The top three teams in the SEC are making the playoff. It doesn't matter if they have one loss or two loss or three loss. Like, they just are. If you add an extra conference game and a team loses maybe another game, I don't think it hurts them at all. What this conversation is really about is about bowl eligibility, because suddenly there's about to become some really, really high profile teams like maybe a I don't know, maybe a Florida, maybe an Auburn, maybe even a Texas at times that is simply competing for bowl eligibility and maybe having four non-conference games is a nicer way to do that. But, you know, when we look at the schedule across college football, obviously, especially at the top, you know, the SEC is deeper than most conferences. But to not have a relatively standardized number of games, I think, is a pretty huge deal uh, whenever it comes to conference games. And the other part of it, too, is that what that leads to is that in many cases, you know, there are teams from the SEC that are playing two less power five games than most of the rest of college football. Because a lot of teams are not only doing a, uh, you know, a conference games. They also don't have as firm a requirement to play a non-conference game against a Power 5 team. So you kind of end up in this weird position where, 
again, I think this upcoming year, Tennessee is only going to play eight power five teams in their schedule. That's weird. That's weird that they're going to be competing against teams that are playing 10 and 11. And obviously, you know, we will give Tennessee a little bit of flack because they have to play both Alabama and Georgia in the same year. But that's not most teams. Most teams don't have to play both those two teams in the SEC as part of their eight or nine games. So I think that there should be a relatively standardized number of games, right? So when we talk about bowl eligibility, for example, you're only allowed to have one FCS game count towards bowl eligibility. Now, I don't think that the gap between the group of five is as big as the FCS, obviously. I'm not saying that it should necessarily be that. But I I do think it is a good thing to work towards having more like eight or nine uh, or to having only maybe one or two of these group of five games, as opposed to having this sort of wide range of them. Because the, the reality is, right, this is a 16 team conference. To play eight games every year in a 16-team conference is insane. Like, that's insane. It is too big a conference to say we're only going to play half the teams in it. Okay, so let's address this. We're trying to find solutions here, Commissioner. You know what? I, I, the co-commissioner thing isn't going to work. I'll be your deputy. I'm fine with it. You're, <laughs> okay. you're more forward-facing. Okay. You're more energetic. You're smarter. You're just more qualified. It's fine. You be the commissioner. I'll be the assistant to the commissioner. So let's address the bowl eligibility thing. I think you're right. Could we just say, this seems like a backwards way of thinking. Well, let's not have as many cool games during the regular season because we want to make sure we qualify for whatever thing on the back end that half the time when these schools go to lower level bowls, they lose money on the proposition because they have to buy a certain number of tickets and they can't sell them to their fans. And then they have to pay for the travel expenses and the payouts, not that much. The coaches want it. Cause like get into a bowl, like for some reason is still a thing. Can we just throw out bowl eligibility and maybe just make it, you have to be four and eight. I guess we don't <laughs> want like a two and 10 team with the rabid fan base to take a, a bowl spot from a more qualified team. But could we relax bowl eligibility to eliminate this part of the discussion? Right? Because I, I think you're right. But it feels like, why would that hold anything back? Can we do that? Can we can we push that as a conference commissioner? So so let's take a step back, right? Because what this is actually about is giving six, seven, eight teams in these new conferences a legitimate thing to measure as success, right? Like to, to measure a successful season. And so if you just take take it and say, well, going four and eight is now a successful season, I don't think that, that suddenly makes it that, right? Like I think that people would still view that as well. We're not supposed to be down here. We're not supposed to have a losing record. We're, like I don't think it's about the possibility of, I, I don't think it's about getting to go to Shreveport. That, that's not what it's about. It's the idea of saying that we won as many games as we lost at least. And I think that a whole bunch of teams, again, that aren't used to it, are going to be right on that precipice. So the issue is not really bowl eligibility. It's as many wins as you can get. The coach, the fan base wants as many wins. It's about having success for, I I mean, when you look at this new uh, 16-team SEC, when you look at the new 16-team Big Ten, how many teams will it be, one, impossible for them to ever win the conference again? I think it's a large number of them. Two, how many of them will it be, very, very difficult, if not impossible, for them to actually, like in the next 20 years, make a playoff case, right? That, that's more teams than we want to think, right? Because I think that for a lot of the conference, making the playoff will be considered a good year. 
But that's not going to be the case for everybody. If it's three or four teams at the top, how many of these teams in the bottom half of the SEC or the bottom half of the Big Ten are actually going to ever be able to rise up and be in the top three? Okay, so but we're talking about having the eight versus nine. Coach, coach, we got to go to nine. No, I don't want to go to nine. Why? Because you want three easy games. Here's the here's the problem right now, right? There are some schools that still want three easy games where some schools have admitted let's do two easy games. So right now, Scott Docterman from The Athletic did this stat. Power five opponents on their schedules in 2023, do you have at least 10 power five opponents? So all your conference games are power five. So then – if you have eight conference games, then two of your four non-conference games need to be power five to get to 10. If you have nine conference games, only one of your three non-conference games needs to be power five to get to 10. The Big Ten, 13 of the 14 schools have at least 10 power five opponents. Pac-12 is 11 of 14. Excuse me, the Big 12 is 11 of 14. The Pac-12 is 10 of 12. The ACC is 10 of 15. The SEC is two of 14. Only two are playing, which means, okay, only two of those schools are are playing two power five teams in the non-conference. So what you have to do is you have to be willing to say, we'll only play two easy games. Nick Saban says he thinks they should play all power five opponents, 12 real games. There are still, still teams who are holding on to the three easy games. They're holding on to the three easy games because then you only have to go three and six against the rest of your schedule to have a, a, a non-losing record to keep your job, that kind of thing. Here's the thing that makes me a little nervous, Shahan. If the world pressures, if we in the commissioner's office pressure the schools into going to non-conference games, if they demand, if they are holding on. So right now, the SEC has a rule, eight conference games, but you have to schedule at least one Power 5 team. So you have to play at least nine good games. They don't have a rule that you have to schedule two, but they make you play nine. If they go to nine conference games, what they are saying is they might drop that rule. And that makes me nervous that the cool non-conference games that we see SEC teams play right now, Texas-Alabama, which they're playing this year, the future will be an SEC game anyway. But Alabama has Ohio State on a future schedule. Alabama has Wisconsin on a future schedule. Alabama has Notre Dame on a future schedule. Georgia has Ohio State on a future schedule. LSU, I think, has Washington on the future schedule. Those kind of things, I'm worried if they're pressured to go to non-conference games, they'll drop all of those. They will cancel those games because they will insist on holding on to three easy games. And if that's going to be the case, I think I'd rather them stay at eight because I think I'd rather see Georgia and Alabama play Ohio State in a cool non-conference matchup then have them pick up a ninth SEC game, which might be Oklahoma or Texas or an extra crossover or whatever, but also which might be Vanderbilt or Mississippi State or Kentucky. That they the, the problem is you have to shake them off three easy games. You have to get them down to two. Like the, the Big Ten's down to two. They're playing nine conference games, and then most of those Big Ten teams play a, a pretty good non-conference game. Michigan State's playing Washington. Ohio State's playing Notre Dame, right? Can we shake the SEC out of that? Because if we can't, let them stay at eight. Let them stay at eight. Yeah, and and I think that that's a huge deal. And again, one of the things that, like, like I go back to it. It is, I think, about you know whenever whenever Greg Sankey and Mike Slide before you know ran the SEC, it is so much about 
the totality of the brand. Obviously, there's success at the top, but you know, I'd compare that, for example, to a conference like the Big 12 or maybe the Pac-12, where they really boosted the teams that were their big money makers, right? So I think that the SEC has always been a conference that tries to enhance the totality of its brand. And that's why I do think that, you know, again, a lot of the ways that the schedule works out is to make things easier for the have-nots. And there are a lot of have-nots in the SEC. The Mississippi schools are have-nots. South Carolina is a have-not. Kentucky, from a football perspective, is a have-not. Vanderbilt, right? Like, there's quite a few. Arkansas has become a, not, a have-not right now in, in college football. And so I, I do think that they're going to try to make a way for the pathway to be easier for them. But again, I think it comes back to that central question, which is what can success be when you're not competing for anything? And I think that, you know, again, right now, there, there are probably six or seven teams in the SEC that are going to have to answer that question of what success is. Do you think they'll shake them off it? Do you think so? They said we're going to do eight in 2024, but we'll keep nine in our in our brains for down the line. Do you think the SEC can get to a point where they are playing nine conference games, but retaining some kind of requirement to play at least at least one legitimate non-conference game? Can you shake them from three easy to two easy or is that going to be an impossible task? So I think my thought process on that is I don't think they'll institute that rule officially. But I do think that it will unofficially be the case for the serious programs, if that makes sense. Is that okay? That might be okay. Bama's going to play Ohio State, but we'll let Mississippi State play three easy games in the quest for a 6-6 six right. six record. I, I think that that would be okay. I think that I'd be okay with that because the reality is, right, I mean, we want to see – I think it's a good thing when – teams have the opportunity to to lose early in the year or to make a statement early in the year against a, a high profile team. So I do think that would be okay. I mean, another part of this too, of course, is that, you know, power five doesn't implicitly mean huge and better and every, no. you know, and so, so like Mississippi state can schedule a game against Boston college and that's fine. Right. Like, and, and they should, that's great. Yeah, And they should. Right. And that's still a very likely win for them, especially in this sort of new SEC big money world. So I, I think that, I, I think that they probably will get rid of the requirement to have a power five game. But again, I, I think that for these serious programs, I, I think that they will still schedule power five games. I think they'll still play to, uh, you know, I think that they will only have two easy games a year, probably a, a first week non-conference and then and then soak on Saturday near the end of November. But and I think I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Uh, Saban says he'd be willing. He thinks they should play all power five teams. Alabama this year plays Middle Tennessee State, South Florida and Chattanooga. It's like Saban <laughs> says, like Saban sort of says, right, make right. me play, make me play. 12 power five games. But if you're not going to make me, we're not. Yeah. So Bama yeah. is not Bama. Awesome. Playing Texas. And actually Bama is Bama misses a lot of the really bad SEC teams, at least this year. Here, here's the other thing. One of the other things here that, that I think it could happen in the big 10, because I've seen this happening with Ohio state with USC coming in. If Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee and LSU and those programs feel like they are going to get, if you go to nine, sort of like the extra game is going to be Texas or Oklahoma. Like they're going to want to emphasize those new teams playing big-time schools. And in their head, 
It's like, well, we're going to, if they, if they thought this way, Alabama is going to cancel the Ohio State series because now they're playing Oklahoma. And Oklahoma kind of replaces Ohio State. And from an SEC perspective and a playoff perspective, if you're playing that game and it's two SEC teams, you're guaranteed to win. Now, you're guaranteed a loss, but you're guaranteed to win. You get something out of it. If Oklahoma beats Alabama, that raises Oklahoma's playoff profile. So Bama shrinks a little bit, but they're still Bama. Oklahoma gets all that Bama absorption. But when Bama plays Ohio State, if Ohio State beats Alabama, Alabama doesn't get anything. So I've seen like if Ohio State's going to add USC on any kind of regular basis in the Big Ten and Ohio State saying, all right, we're playing USC, we're playing Michigan, we're playing Penn State, and then we're also going to play Alabama. At least if we play USC and USC beats Ohio State, the Big Ten gets a big win out of it. Maybe we'll dump this Alabama series. That makes me nervous. It does make me nervous because you can keep it all in-house. You keep the big wins in-house. So I wonder how that thinking affects it. The final thing is, can the playoff committee do something? The idea that 2024 is going to be a a time for everybody to get a lay of the land. First 12-team playoff, what are they taking into consideration? Oh my gosh, they put in an 8-4 and team with a great schedule ahead of a 10-2 and team that played nobody. They they can make a point. And, And you can't make a point for the sake of making a point but you can do it because you think it's the best thing for college football and those teams deserve it. That'll change people's thinking, right? And I'm not against the SEC or anybody taking a trial run. How do you think the committee should, will interpret that? Because that will have a direct effect on how teams schedule. No, I mean, I I think that's a huge deal. And, you know, so so for example, right, we're going to head into this 12-team world, the conference champion, they're going to be guaranteed a top four spots. Uh, You know, I, I think that... I think that, yeah, the committee can send a message about non-conference scheduling. We saw that, for example, back in 2014 with Baylor. You know, they, they were not pleased with their non-conference schedule and the Big 12 instituted a, a mandatory Power 5 non-conference game. And so I do think that will be definitely a different, uh, an interesting dynamic. It, you know, so I, I do think that there are ways that the committee can send a message. I do think that there are ways that college football can send a message. And I think that what's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on is I, I think there's this assumption, too, that in 2024, 2025, the SEC is just going to get four or maybe even five teams in potentially. Well, you know, I think that we're going to figure out pretty early on how much is about wins, how much is about losses, right? Because so far it's kind of been just a loss aversion game primarily to make the college football playoff. Well, I think that, you know, when we have 12, when we have more at larges, when we have conference champions getting a guaranteed bid, I think it can become more about what you've done as opposed to what you haven't lost. All right, Commissioner Shahan, this is what Deputy Doug, ooh, this is what Deputy Doug recommends that our policy be. We're going to go to nine conference games. And as you said, we strongly suggest to the serious teams that they play a major power five non conference game. So they play 10 good games. The programs in the bottom half of the conference will we'll let them decide their fate. A little bit more. We're not going to have a hard and fast rule. We're going to go to our television partners and say, okay, if we're going to nine, we want more money. But by the way, those non-conference games, right? You get your network gets your home game. So when Alabama and Ohio State play, ESPN currently has the SEC contract. They'll get the game in Tuscaloosa. And then by the Big Ten contract, the game in, in Columbus will be either an NBC primetime game or a CBS afternoon game or a Fox noon game because those are the three Big Ten partners. 
We also tell our TV partners, you're going to get there's These games are not going away. That enhances the value. And that locks the good teams in to sort of having to live by the suggestion because we've sort of put it in the TV contract language and we get the best of both worlds of what you're suggesting, Commissioner Shahan. Nine conference games and a strong suggestion, short of a requirement that gets us the big time non-conference games that we want. Can I write that up and put it on your desk for you to sign, sir? Yeah, I think so. And the last piece of it as well is I think eventually the TV networks are just going to say, fine, here's a little bit more money. Like, I think that they're just going to be like, this is this is such a joke. This is such a waste. We'll give you a little bit more money. Um, I don't think they'll give them a lot more money, especially, you know, we're hearing from ESPN that they're trying to maybe minimize some of the prices that they're paying out right now. It's been a huge issue of contention with the Pac-12 during their negotiations. But I think they'll find a little bit more money. Better for the league, better for our fans, better for the sport, better for playoff resume. No reason that our big-time teams should play 10 major games on a 12-game schedule each year. Well done, Commissioner Shahan. I think the media is really going to react to all of this. I think you're going to get a boost in your Q rating based on your leadership on this issue. When we come back, we'll talk about gambling and injury reports next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Kamish, listen, this is a thing. It's it's a weird thing. It was a topic of conversation at SEC meetings because the Bama baseball coach got fired basically because of a, of a gambling accusation, a gambling scandal. There has been this thing where beyond not having injury reports, some teams, more and more teams don't even put out depth charts anymore. And the conference doesn't make anybody do anything. No conferences make people put out injury reports or provide information. Now that gambling is legalized in more and more states, it is a topic of conversation. Should you have an NFL-style injury report? And would the reasoning behind that be now? Because the whole thing with the Alabama baseball scandal, for people who don't have the shorthand version, the allegation is, is that the Alabama baseball coach who has since been fired was in contact with somebody who was placing a bet on that baseball game at a sports book in Ohio. And the reason it was interesting is because the starting pitcher for Alabama in that game was being scratched. And before that information was public, the bet was being made. So it was injury information. This is where there's inside information. That's where a lot of that inside information is focused. Is there a way, Commissioner Shahan, where we could mandate in our conference some type of NFL-style injury report that would not divulge private medical information of amateur athletes that would somehow be protected by HIPAA, but would advise, basically, if someone's going to play or not. A, a probable, questionable, whatever kind of rating system. You don't necessarily have to put what part of the body it is. Just are they going to play? Have they practiced during the week? That's what the NFL does. Hey, on Wednesday, this person practiced. They were limited in practice. They were out of practice. Through the week, you can see that evolution of a player's health. Can we mandate that in our conference, Commissioner Shahan? Well, just to address that last point, uh, a coach saying in a player's injury is not HIPAA, just for the record. Uh, first of all, players sign HIPAA waivers when they get to campus so that medical staff can can uh, communicate with the coaching staff. And the other part of it is that HIPAA regards healthcare providers providing that information to other people. It doesn't say that no one is allowed to talk about your health. Just 
I, I, I just feel like I, I feel like we've lost the plot on what HIPAA is. So I just think it's important to set things right. That was so strong. That is going to play so well on the press conference because <laughs> Commissioner Shahan, you are right. But the people who don't want to divulge any inf- injury information because they think everything about college football is a state secret. They hide behind that stuff, even yes. though you just laid out the case for why they shouldn't. Yes, yes. HIPAA does not apply here. FERPA does not apply here. I just, I, we, we just have to set that, that up first and foremost. For example, coaches talk about player injury info all the time, all the time. Anyway, uh, so I think that, look, part of this is philosophical. Part of this is how much are conferences going to acknowledge the fact that gambling is a part of the deal right and we saw you know a couple of years ago the mac made a data sharing partnership with a a company that works with sports books to provide them data and information and analytics and things like that uh you know which i think is one of the more public ways that we've seen this acknowledgement i think that we've seen universities start to have relationships with sports books and with casinos uh in in a more public way we still haven't reached a point of players being able to have those relationships and and we probably won't but i think that there's been such a public reckoning with the fact that gambling is a driver of college football not just at the sport level but at the conference level and at the individual institution level that like you said it is an existential issue for people to have this kind of inside information whenever they're making bets and this is true of people in the organization uh who would have the ability to potentially gamble uh with with inside information but this is also true of sports books getting information you know that that obviously the public doesn't have so i do think that you have to reach a point if this is going to be an endeavor that quote unquote embraces the idea that there's gambling involved and we are at a point where a huge number of college football states have sports gambling or at least have access to sports gambling I think that you have to have some level of standardization or normalization or it throws everything into flux. Again, we we saw with the Alabama baseball scandal that the Alabama baseball coach had that information and was willing to to monetize it. Right. And so if the head coach who probably just lost out on a salary of hundreds of thousands of dollars per year and will probably never work in college athletics ever again, if he's willing to make those kind of bets, who knows who else? in the organizations is making those kinds of bets and with that kind of information too. I'm not sure anymore what the reason for not doing it would be. Once you break through the not quite right use of FERPA and HIPAA and every UPA, ERPA there is in the book to hide behind that. Ohio State, for instance, releases an availability report three hours before kickoff, usually. So you know before kickoff if a guy is going to be out, but you don't know it over the course of the week. So if you're waiting for betting information or, or if you're someone who's trying to get a lean on something, you the world does find out, hey, this person who's typically a starter or an important player who there was some talk that you know they left the game last week and they were limping and it was like, ah. Oh, the reporters were asking questions all week. Hey, is this guy going to play? And the coach is like, we don't talk about injuries. We don't talk about injuries. Three hours before kickoff, you find out, oh, that guy's out. But I don't know why that can't be mandated to have more transparency through the course of the week. So let's put this on your desk, Commissioner Shahan. A full availability report based on what a player does or does not do in practice, 
through the course of the week and a final conclusion on the day before the game about their status for Saturday. Whatever our ranking system is, is there 75% chance they play, 50% chance, 25% chance, or they're out. And if you are found to have knowingly violated our rule, you lose scholarships. You get a warning the first time, and then the second time you knowingly and willfully violate our availability injury policy, you lose one scholarship for the next year or something, like you like to have a real punishment. Can we put this on your desk, Commissioner Shahan? Would you sign that? I would sign that. I think that the way that I'd probably structure it, because because NFL, what, they release injury reports on Thursdays, I think it is, before the games? They do have, but I think through the course of the week they have, hey, here was their practice availability like on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You can tell if a guy's taking a rest day. You can tell if a guy's limited or if a guy is out. It's not a determination of availability, but it is the factual information. You're, you're not saying what it means. You're just saying this player didn't practice all the way. He was limited in practice. What does that mean? Were they just being safe? Was it like, man, the guy was barely, he could barely walk, but he tried. You don't know what it means, but you know what it was. Sure. So I think there's a way to provide information and then provide a conclusion late in the week to what you're saying. So I think that, for example, having a final injury report come out three hours before the game, I don't have an issue with that. I think that's fine for a final determination. I think that basically, because I know that I've gotten this from Ohio State before, from Wisconsin before, I know that they're quite good about doing this stuff. Basically, I just want that, but one on Thursday as well. One that happens after the major practices of that week that says there was some question, you know, and even with all this, right, because like, this communication does happen to some extent through, uh, you know, whenever you're talking with local reporters and stuff like that. But one, there's obviously no obligation to do any of this stuff. And I think there should be some level of obligation whenever you're when, – again, the stakes are this high with the gambling uh, implications swirling. And two, so it's a little bit more formalized and centralized so that you're not having to go to the, you know, the Lansing State Journal to try to figure out – what's going on. Right. And so I, I do think that this would be a good thing. I do think that this is necessary. This is something that I would sign. All right. We're putting it on your desk. I just, once upon a time, it was like, Oh, this coach is more willing to share information. This coach is less. So it's like, Oh, this guy's a little more of a hardliner. This guy's easier to work. like, you can't leave it to that anymore. You can't leave it to the whim of the coach because like whether or not there's a competitive the coaches are all they're worried about is the competitive advantage. And then you reach the point as soon as like everybody, oh, I'm going to talk about injuries because everybody, as soon as one guy doesn't and it feels like that guy's getting an edge, then the next guy doesn't and the next guy doesn't. So I do think we're the, to the point where we do just have to formalize more things in college football because it's and, and whether maybe you can't do it nationally because the NCAA is ineffective because you can't get Congress to pass a law about everything. But you can do it on a conference basis. And so then maybe when you play your non-conference game, out, the SEC has a rule. You have to have an injury report. And Texas, currently in the, in the Big 12, doesn't have that rule. So they don't have to do the same thing. But at least for your conference games, you can control that. We're putting it on your desk. I'm glad you'll sign that. I think you're going to get a big boost off of this, Commissioner Shahan. NIL conference policy. The SEC has talked about this. The SEC is sending a delegation, including Nick Saban, to Washington to, again, Shake, shake the the uh, the legislatures there to try to have a little 
something from the federal government formalizing NIL, name, image, and likeness legislation across the country. It's currently a state issue. And actually, as it turns out, if your state didn't pass any NIL rule, that could almost be better because then there are no rules about NIL and you can do whatever you want. One thing the SEC talked about this week, Shahan, is the idea of if there's not going to be federal legislation, at the very least, what the SEC could do was take its 12 states that have SEC schools and say, rather than going by the individual state rules, let's make conference rules that the state legislatures, because listen, it's like, well, how can you get the states to follow? Because the SEC can tell state legislatures what to do. Nobody in Alabama or Tennessee and LSU or Louisiana is going to be like, nope, we're not listening to the SEC. They'll be like, oh, no, it's fine. Because they all acted, they all did what their major college football programs told them to do because nobody else was acting. So that's why they acted. Do you think that step, the federal NIL stuff, I kind of get, again, on the list of things that matter in this country. I cannot believe that amateur sports in America is so ineffective that they have to go to Congress and and the Congress should just kick them in the neck and say, we have more important things to worry about. As a conference, Shahan, conference commissioner, Shahan, would you try to circle the wagons and say, let's make a conference rule about this that formalizes maybe a database that is then available about what deals are signed, rules about what can and can't be used for recruiting inducements, whatever you want to do, but we're all going to play by the same set of rules. Would you sign that commission? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that makes sense. Uh, I really, I mean, one thing to kind of take a step back is that I even would prefer that it not be conference by conference. You know, I think that obviously for an individual conference, you only have power over what you can do. But for example, I don't know, is there a way to use the college football playoff organization to, to try to push some of this stuff? Is there a way to use, uh, you know, obviously the the five conferences at the top, the one official way that they're different than the other conferences is they have autonomy status. They can pass rules and laws that only apply to them <clears throat> that don't have to apply to everybody else. You know, I, I feel like, yes, it's a good thing for, for one, this to get out of Congress, because remember when Congress was like so bored that they just brought in baseball players because they wanted to talk to Rafael Palmero and like we're we're a little occupied these days. <laughs> oh, those were the days. Yeah, no, that's a good point. They used to dabble in sports because they didn't have anything else to do. Yeah, yeah, it, it was like, well, we're at war, but we already passed the funding and like not a whole lot else we can do right now. And now it's like. Hey guys, uh, is the world okay? Is everything like, do we, do we have money to pay the bills? Is that part of this? Uh, anyway, that's all beside the point. Um, but you know, yeah, I think that the idea of Congress prioritizing this stuff is obviously stupid. Like, I don't think that they should be obligated to try to pass this. It seems like the NCAA is going to be feckless on this uh, when it comes to any sort of type of leadership on this. And already we're seeing local states start to, you know, undercut the NCAA as well, right? There was a there was a law passed in Oklahoma like a month or two ago that basically says, by the way, it's against Oklahoma state law for the NCAA to punish you if you use NIL as a recruiting inducement. Like, and what can, the NCAA can't do anything about that, right? So I do think that if you are an individual conference, let's say you're the SEC, let's say you're the Big Ten. I, I do think it is a positive thing to at least within your footprints have equal rules, but I would 
really prefer that again, whether it's the autonomy five, whether it's the FBS, whether it's the the schools involved in the college football playoff, they find some way to have a standardization so that we don't have to have conferences potentially with completely different rules. Because I will say Shane Beamer from the head coach of South Carolina brought this up and he was talking about, hey, you have meetings with guys at the end of the season and you get a handle on like, you kind of know some guys are interested in transferring and some guys, they seem good. And then all of a sudden they transfer. And so that's kind of the issue that he was talking about. And it was pointed out in the story that I was reading. It's like, well, they lost two players to Florida State and one to USC. And those I think would qualify in the, he didn't see that coming. He was surprised by that. And neither of those schools are in the SEC. So you could, I, I do think sometimes there's reluctance of like, well, why are we going to pass laws to regulate our se- rules, to regulate ourselves when nobody else is doing it? You would push more for either through the playoff or for the, the, the big five conferences, whatever, to try to do something on their own. Whatever it is, what would it be? Would there be any limits on NIL or would it be more about transparency and having maybe a database so that people are aware? Because here's the thing, this is where everybody gets into trouble. There's not a database of endorsements for pro athletes. There's not, when you sign a deal with a soft drink company or a clothing company or a shoe company, it's not like, okay, well, Kyrie, did you put your Nike deal in the database? That's not required because it's not, <laughs> it's not, you're not being paid by your employer. It's an outside thing. So is NIL more like an endorsement? Where it's like, what do you mean? There's not an, why would we have transparency in a database? Who cares? Or is it more like you're being paid? And then it's like, okay, well, that always comes out. Everybody knows that. You sit, the market sets itself. People need to know that information. College sports can't decide what NIL is. But Commissioner Shahan, whether it's at our conference level or you're trying to, to rally everybody to have it more cohesively across the country, what would you want? What would be the NIL rules that you would want to establish? I think that it's less endorsements, right? I don't need to know what Bryce Young got paid to do a Dr. Pepper ad. That's not really the point to me. The point is more with collectives. Like, I think that that's the real part where you need to regulate a little bit more is just to have some level of transparency. And like, again, if if somebody's signing with a collective and making a million dollars, well, like, congratulations to them. It's not about preventing it to me. So you would say every collective deal must be made public. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that you could create some rules about what you consider a collective, what needs to be uh, made public. But again, you know, we have these organizations. Actually, there was a there was a notable one where Texas A&M essentially created an organization that uses its own fundraising arm in order to to fundraise NIL. So it is it is, quote unquote, not directly affiliated, but it's also, quote unquote, affiliated right like this is a part of the university that is raising money to give to players as inducements to come to campus and i again i don't have a huge issue with that i mean for me at the end of it it's like if players are getting the money at the end of it i'm not that concerned about it because i think that's a better scenario than what was happening before but the idea that it can be this like shadow arm of the university and or shadow arm of boosters right because Obviously, so many of these endorsements are run by boosters. So many of these collectives are run by boosters and people who were involved with the school before. The idea that we can just sit here and pretend 
that they're not affiliated because they have a nominal separation is ridiculous, right? It is it is a an inducement that is being paid to players in order to come play at a school. That is just fact. And so I think that collectives are the big part where you'd want to see just a little bit of transparency. Okay, so Commissioner Shahan, we are going to have a conference database where every collective deal goes in there. And then I do think you don't want players to get promised things that then aren't delivered. And like the best, like you can, you can sue somebody individually. You you signed a contract with me, but whatever. And then you didn't follow through on it. That can be difficult, especially if it's sort of oral promises before you get to signing on a dotted line. I do think the best way at the moment, maybe to help protect those players to get what they're promised is through public transparency. Like here's what they said. And then if you, it's just like outside pressure. So here, this is combined, and this came up to the SEC, tampering. So this is transfer portal and tampering. What can we do, Kamish, so that we aren't quite at the point where a big-time team with a big-time collective can just go to a happy player on a current team and say, you know what, if you left, we'd give you $2 million bucks, Or should that be allowed? Now, that in pro sports, when you're a free agent, you can talk to other teams. If we know that tampering exists, but every now and then the NBA will ding a team for tampering. So they, we know they don't catch everybody, but they still have rules against it. And they say you're not supposed to talk until this period of time, until you're actually free. You know, you're not supposed to, the Golden State Warriors aren't supposed to talk to Kevin Durant during the season to try to get him to come to Golden State, not in any kind of formal way. The SEC seemed very concerned with tampering. One of the things they want to do as a result is shrink the transfer portal windows. Currently, there's the 45-day window from like mid-December till the end of January, and then there's another 15-day window when spring football ends, April 15 to 30. They were sort of suggesting if you shrink the window, maybe you shrink the opportunity for that kind of tampering to have time to take effect. Because I think this is what coaches think. Unhappy players should be able to do whatever they want. Happy players shouldn't be yanked out of their happy situation by a school offering more money. But then it's like, what, well, what, like, what does that mean? Unhappy players have rights and happy players don't. So it's a, this is just what the coaches are complaining about, Shahan. What can we do as a conference about tampering? And is how much is that tied to recommending a, a different transfer portal time, recommending different rules and transparency about NIL? Because all that's connected, but the tampering, that's what really, a guy's not thinking about it. I'm happy here. I'm getting NIL money here. But then another school says, well, we give you this. Should that be okay or not? I mean, we could have players like sign contracts for guaranteed amounts of money for a guaranteed. Anyway, this beside the point. Well, it's not, it's not beside the point. It's a different <laughs> podcast. It's not beside the point because yeah, even yeah, Saban no, said, no. maybe we just should do that. Right. And then everybody was like, oh, Saban said maybe we're just there because that's the whole thing. If you want to limit it, right. you've got to pay it to limit it. But sh- maybe that's an idea. Short of that, is there anything you can do? And I'm not even sure tampering's the right word because if every player has the right to leave at any point, then what is tampering? Does ta- can right. tampering even exist? Well, I think I think that certainly – you you can't have tampering. You can't you can't have players on a team at every moment being bombarded with people trying to get them to do something else. Like you just can't. You can't live that way. Like you said, in the NBA, they have rules against it. Obviously, that doesn't prevent players from talking to each other, but that does drastically limit the types of contact that teams are able to have with players. And so 
I mean, even even for example, heck, I, I think that uh, you know one thing that could potentially be a relative positive to this is if they had more like representation or agents or things like that. So at least it's not coming directly to players all the time, right? Because I think that it's just a lot, and that's also that's not fair to players to to always be you know attacked, to always uh, you know have new things. I I don't know. It's just a lot for them to have to deal with, and so. You can't have tampering. No, it shouldn't just be allowed to contact a player at any time and try to get them to come somewhere else. I, I think that you know we have rules about contact when it's uh, when it's obviously a member of another staff or another head coach, for example. That probably needs to be expanded to include any representatives of an organization, right? Like, I don't know, uh, you know, what boosters, for example, are contacting who. I know that one thing that happens is that uh, that boosters will contact high school coaches of players who are at a place to try to gain access to them without gaining access to them. I don't I don't know that's how that should be. I don't know that they should be able to to communicate in that kind of way. And so I, I do think that, you know, obviously, I, I get the thing about the windows. I think the windows are going to help a lot, though, because, for example, like the windows are closed now. Nobody can transfer again until the end of the 2023 season. So this is over. Right, this is over and done. But I, I do think that what this does come down to, to a large extent, is also just having a regulatory body that you have to trust. I, you know, to take a step back from all of this, I mean, I'm kind of rambling a little bit. The real issue with all of this stuff is that we have all these ideas for rules, and at this moment, nobody to enforce it. No one to enforce it. We'll right. get the PR people to clean this up before the news conference commission. Yes. Don't worry about the rambling. We'll get it figured out. <laughs> I, I would say this. The idea, in the past, the NCAA certainly penalized schools and programs for the actions of boosters. So the idea that, so what if you did this? And I think people got very tired of the NCAA policing whether you had cream cheese on your bagel, right? Like the the inane NCAA rules and the things that were ridiculously sort of penalizing players who were maybe trying to do anything to make some money while making no money from the universities. I think people might get behind an NCAA that says we are out to police tampering because this is not limiting players' abilities to make money. We are just saying you've got to do it within the certain parameters. And if we find that a school or a representative of a school, because we've penalized schools for booster actions before. If we find that, if you contacted a player, directly or indirectly, whatever we do to, to draw up the rules, outside of these windows, you are fined. The head coach is fined $100,000 and the institution is fined $100,000 for every instance of tampering. So if you tamper 11 times, that's more than a million each, school and head coach. And if you do it, if at some point we have a serial tamperer violation, and now we're talking about scholarship reductions. And the NCAA would police that. Would they catch everybody? No. But they would catch, you're on alert that there's a penalty for it and it's not allowed. And as much as people hate the NCAA, as, in, as ineffective as it would be, this seems like a thing that you actually could police to some degree and scare people into not doing it. Would you support that, Kamish? Oh, absolutely. And I think the other part of this is, yeah, rethink the NCAA as a consumer protection organization. Because, for example, like players right now are not protected if NILs, uh, if uh, collectives don't deliver. 
right? They're, they're not really protected in any meaningful way. They're not protected uh, whenever they're tampered with. They're not protected whenever, uh, you know, whenever people are doing all sorts of stuff around them, right? And so I think that that is very strictly what this new NCAA should be. It should be a way to protect players from all these other issues. And so, I, I, you know, obviously we talk about tampering. Obviously we talk about NIL. Obviously we talk about collectives. I mean, all of this stuff is stuff that I think the NCAA could do. They haven't. They aren't. But I think that it absolutely should be a part. And again, if we get to the point where we're talking about breaking off or autonomy five or whatever it is, I, I think that is a fundamental part is that you have to create some sort of regulatory agency because what is the, there's no point in having laws or rules if nobody is there to enforce said laws or rules. We're going to get you in a room commission with new NCAA commissioner, Charlie Baker. I think you, you have some strong points here to make and we're trying to help the NCAA. Don't, don't try to be what you were, but don't give up completely. There are still ways that you could help regulate this sport in a way that I think people would welcome and that would not penalize anybody because it's not that you're taking something away you're just trying to limit the time periods and limit the scope which again which is that's where there's just a mistaken view of this sometimes that if you think that ncaa players should be able to do whatever they want whenever they want to do it at all times regardless of the situation that doesn't exist in any sport it does not exist you are a free agent at a certain time but an nfl player an nba player can't leave his team in the middle of the season he can't sign with his team like he can't leave in the middle of the playoffs and start taking offers. Right. So we're just we're trying to regulate it so that it makes more sense. But without taking away the money making opportunities of these athletes. Kabish, I think you're on to something here. We have two more things to hit before we finish up. And then we're, we're going to have to get the uh, Mr. Baker on the phone because I think this meeting needs to happen. We'll do that next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Doug Maurice, Deputy Doug, back with Commissioner Shahan J. Haraja. Streaming services, our TV contract for our conference, Shahan. Are we completely open to streaming services as a primary provider, as a secondary provider? There certainly has been some issues in the Big Ten where Peacock is part of the package with the Big Ten. They have Fox. They have the Big Ten Network, they have CBS, they have NBC, but they're going to have, I believe, eight Peacock games a year, and some of them have started to be announced. For instance, Washington, Michigan State this year is on Peacock. So if you do not get that streaming service, you you are not going to watch that game. That includes Michigan State fans. That's their big non-conference game. You are forcing Michigan State fans to get Peacock for a day to watch this one game. Now, I think it's like eight or ten bucks a month, so it's like, okay, well... You're paying eight or 10 bucks for a game and then you can cancel it after a month. Are are we comfortable with that? Is streaming the new way of the world? Certainly the Pac-12 may wind up with much more than a handful of games on streaming services. Are you open arms on streaming? Wary, where are you? Well, first of all, Big Ten, you just signed a $75 million contract per team. So like, guess what? You don't get to decide anymore whether you're okay with streaming. It's coming. It's coming along. But... I do think... Would you have done that, Kamish? Would you have done that? Because, yes, it's the greedy teams who want all the money, but do we care that fans, one of their four best games of the year, they have to buy a separate streaming service for that game that they might not have any other interest in otherwise? 
Do we care about that? Should we have thought about that before we signed the deal? Well, they should have really thought about me because now I have to get Peacock because obviously I love watching Washington. So that sucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should have put them all on Paramount Plus. That's a great streaming network, uh, maybe affiliated with Look the organization you. I work for. Look but uh, at you. Maybe you I, I love it. <laughs> maybe I get a free subscription to it as being a Paramount employee. Yeah. Could yeah, you maybe. share your sign in? Share your sign in with our <laughs> listeners. Absolutely not. Um, okay. Anyway, anyway. So the way that I view it is I don't have an issue with how the Big Ten did it. Uh, we obviously have seen this in the Big 12 and with the SEC and with the ACC. Most of theirs is only encapsulated with uh, with ESPN Plus and ESPN3, those types of uh, organizations. And I, I think, frankly, I think that's easier to deal with than involving a Peacock or a Paramount or something like that. But we have seen this, and I think it's been relatively successful. Obviously, it's something to take under consideration, and I would not do it as a primary, right? Right now, we are having conversations about the idea of the Pac-12 being a primary streaming apparatus. I think that is a huge issue. I think that is a huge mistake. Um, and again, they're, they're probably going to have to consider it because of the monetary aspect. But, you know, the reality is, I, I think that when you're talking about college football, we are the diehards. We are the people who are turning on any channel to watch anything, but a whole bunch of people just watch what's on the major networks. They just flip on Fox. They just flip on ESPN. They just flip on ABC and watch what's on more than even for matchups or following teams or anything else. And when you eliminate yourself from that, I think that you are doing a huge disservice to your branding. The idea that people can't actually watch your games casually, that, that if uh, you know, for example, last year, I, this one killed me. USC played at Oregon State in one of the most exciting games of the year. Caleb Williams kind of had a Heisman moment in coming back in that game. And I was only able to watch it because my company happens to have a company-issued FUBU account. Because otherwise, I do not have the Pac-12 network. And I think that when you look at the state of the Pac-12 right now, the fact that people around the country could not easily watch some of the best games in the country has played a huge part in the reason that USC and UCLA are leaving, plays a huge role in the reason that uh, that the Pac-12, I think from a branding perspective, is, is clearly five out of five right now. And so it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to put some good matchups, some real matchups behind a paywall. And I think it's something different to say the bulk. It, we're, we're not putting the game behind a paywall, right? We're not putting USC, UCLA behind a paywall. We're not putting USC, Ohio State when it comes behind a paywall. I mean, I would prefer that Michigan State versus Washington be a nationally televised game. I, I think that would be better because I think that both these teams are awesome. And Washington, you know, I think that it kicked off their season last year when they beat Michigan State in, in a lot of ways. But it's different to me to have a couple of tier two and tier three matchups behind a paywall than it is to put the main part of your product that you want the masses to watch behind a paywall. That's an interesting view because I almost could see the other side of it where if you're just – it's like, okay, what do you have to do to watch Pac-12 football? You have to get Apple. You just have to get it. But at least you know, okay, okay, well, I'm getting everything then as opposed to, well, we're going to drop one good game out of sure, the year on sure. this thing that you otherwise don't – like you don't want Peacock. You don't want it, but you have to get it for this one game. Apple, if you get it, you're getting your money's worth if a bunch of things are on streaming. But I think the casual viewer thing is still very worthwhile. I wish there would be a way. 
to just like create a channel for fans where it's like it's the LSU channel. And I'm going <laughs> to click on the LSU channel. They tried that. It was called the Longhorn Network. <laughs> but it's just it's just like one of those things where it's a redirect. And so I don't have to. And if it pops up, hey, you have to pay four dollars to pay for this LSU game. The one last week was free. This one's four dollars. OK, you can decide or not. But the whole point is they don't want to do that because the whole point is they want to make you get Peacock and then you forget to cancel it. Now you're a Peacock subscriber and you watch the Natasha Leone show and you happen to like that. Now you're a Peacock subscriber because you told yourself, I'm just going to get it to watch Washington State to watch Washington, Michigan State. And it was like, well, I'll try this. So they don't want to offer it as a one-off. So I know why they're doing it, but it I don't know. I wish we would think about fans a little bit more for that because I, I don't it's, – it's a valuable property. Does every American have a constitutional right to watch every single one of their team's favorite college football games for free? Probably not. Probably not. I, I don't think it's outrageous to be like, you want me to pay $8 for one of them and the other 11 I can get with my normal things that I subscribe to? I, I don't think that's outrageous. But I think it should be easy and I think it should be explained and I think it shouldn't be too complicated. So maybe I make too big of a deal about it, but it just feels like I don't, I don't like the idea of – because, again, I went through it with the Big Ten Network covering that whenever it was 20 years ago, eight, 18 – 16 years ago feeling like you're sort of holding diehard fans hostage for like uh, but at least then that was about the big 10 network was about force your cable provider to get the big 10 network and then your bill goes up three dollars but the game just shows up on your tv then it's you're making the businesses interact this is a personal interaction that's like we're making you get peacock and you're like but i don't want peacock you have to get it and it's an it's an an individual interaction that I find a little more, ugh, I don't, I don't know about a little more unseemly that they're holding the individual fan hostage rather than the cable company. So Kamish, I get what you're coming from. I think the idea of we don't want to lose the casual fan is very smart, but I think we have to be honest with our fans as we do all this kind of stuff. All right. Well, last one, one, one is, thing too, one thing too, real quick is I will be curious as well. Uh, Cause for example, I, only have YouTube TV, right, to watch sports. That's the only thing I really do on it. Yeah, every so often there'll be a show on, but like I am subscribed to Paramount Plus. I am subscribed to these other things where I can watch the TV shows three hours later, right? And so it is it is interesting for sure to kind of be in this position where that's the only reason I'm subscribed to this thing. I'm curious as well if we get to a point where, especially with a Peacock game, especially with, you know, uh, an ESPN Plus game, with a Paramount game, if we do reach a point of microtransactions of saying, you know, maybe Peacock is $5 a month, but if you pay $7, you don't have to sign up for the subscription, but you can watch this game. Because, you know, I, I know that they want you to sign up for the recurring thing. That's obviously the point. But also, like, if you're a, if you're a league if you're any of these things like that is that is a huge deal to to not have eyeballs going to some of your best properties and again for the big 10 they're going to be across three networks i think they're going to be fine i don't think it's a huge issue for them i i think with the sec you know it's all going to be espn you only have to really be subscribed to espn plus and you're and you can get everything essentially it's the pac 12 that i'm really worried about where Maybe you're on multiple streaming networks. Maybe you're, you know, in all these difficult places. 
I remember, uh, you know, when I was covering the state of Texas for Dave Campbell's, the one that just killed me was Conference USA. Conference USA's television contract is horrendous. And, and they signed it because it was more money than what other places were doing. But the, the channels that they had that you had to find were insane. Like you had to, you had to get stadium. You had to get like the, you had to stream games on Facebook. You had to, uh, you had to get some network called be in, which is some like middle Eastern network that like is trying to get into the U S it was crazy. And like, I didn't, I was trying to watch all these games and even I didn't know how to get it. So I do think that that's the one part is try to centralize it, try to make it so that, uh, you know, again, I think that in a way, the Big Ten is lucky because their primary partner is Fox, which is not a network trying to lean towards streaming right now. They're trying to be a network. Um, and, and you know, they'll get some Peacock games. It doesn't sound like there's going to be many Paramount games at this point. And so you do kind of only, quote unquote, have to get Peacock out of the streaming services. But I think that that's the issue is like when you're talking about getting multiple streaming networks, when you're talking about having to go to multiple places, I think this is even true of the Pac-12 network right now. That's when I think you really start to make things difficult for fans is when you have to do multiple things. Yeah. And, and again, in a world where if you think that players should be more directly compensated by the university and you're in a place where, hey, you know, tickets to games are 70 and 80 and 100 and 200 dollars for good games or even more, especially if you get on the secondary market. And then you think, well, I demand free access to every game from my couch. It's like, well. Entertainment and information, it costs money to produce it, so it might cost money to consume it. So I I don't want to get held up on it, but I don't want fans to feel like watching their favorite team is, to your point, right, is so difficult. And so if it costs a little money, I think we have to be accepting of that. But I, I just don't want the fans to get railroaded by these TV contracts where conferences take the highest bidder no matter what without thinking about access. And I think commissioner, you made a very good point about that. Last thing. I don't even know if we should put this on your desk. It feels like a lot of chatter more than is needed about this topic and it's field storming. It came up a lot at the sec. They doubled the fines for storming the field. They are now first offense, a hundred thousand dollars, second offense, $250,000, third offense, $500,000. The primary concern on the discussion as they said it at the SEC was getting the visiting team off the field safely and the officials off the field safely. So they also said if the storming doesn't happen until the officials and the visiting team are off the field, then you don't get any fine. You can storm then, but that means you've got to wait. Like you've got to give them like two and a half minutes to get everybody off the field. They also said if you're going to storm, forget the handshake line, just get off the field. I know there was like some incidents where a fan and maybe somebody got pushed and then whatever by a player. I don't know that we've had a rash of, have we had a rash of visiting teams that feeling that their safety is like very legitimately threatened by this. And I don't know. I kind of like storming the field commish. It seems to be a thing that is part of college football of all the things. I don't know. I, I don't want anyone to get hurt. But are we making too big a deal about this? Do we need really need all these rules about it? I mean, storming the field rules. Like, come on. It rules. How are we disincentivizing storming the field? That is so wild to me. That It's one of the most fun things to do 
as a college football fan. I, I got to do it a couple of times when I was a student at Baylor. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I've, I've covered a surprising amount of games that ended with field stormings. And for sure, I mean, I was there, uh, for example, at the Texas A&M LSU 2018 game that went to seven overtimes. And notably, one of, uh, one of the things that happened was somebody who was, I think, later revealed to be Jimbo Fisher's nephew was punched by LSU's running backs coach. But like, that wasn't even somebody who wouldn't have been on the field otherwise. He was already on the yeah. field. And so it's like, you know, obviously, obviously you have to be aware of this. Look in the SEC, like, you know, the, the mantra is it just means more. And obviously I have some issues with that, but like, you do have crazy fans in the SEC. You do have like probably per capita more people who want to do insane things than in other conferences, I guess you could say. But like, to me, this is more about having a clear path of exit and like a plan in place for the opposing team to get off the field more than anything else. Right. Cause I know that there are some, uh, some stadiums where there's some stadiums where obviously uh, Michigan where people exit the same way. Like, that's not good, right? You have situations where a team, for example, to exit the field has to cross the field. I think that that's not palatable, for example. So I, I think that it's really more that, that teams just need to be more aggressive about coming up with ways to get players off the field. But like, come on. This is such a fundamental part of sports and college sports specifically. You don't get to do this in pro sports and, and you're part of the action. That That's part of the fun of it. But I mean, it, it just feels so paternalistic and so unnecessary. And the reality is, too, any, uh, what, you're going to tell Tennessee fans that they shouldn't have rushed the field against Alabama? Like, so, you think that, that Tennessee's not going to pay any fine? So what's actionable here? So the question is, I, it feels like the SEC, I think, has some stuff like, you have to have a plan. You have to make a plan for security. You have to do a certain number of things. And you have to tell us, like, what your plan is. So, Commissioner, saying, okay, we need an actionable plan. How are you in the event of this? How are we getting the officials and the visiting team off the field? We need to do that as quickly and as smartly and have a plan ahead of time. Should we have any fines, though? Because when we're talking about this stuff, we're just saying, hey, if you're going to tamper, you got to have punishment to make people do it. You can require the plan. Hey, it's August 1st. Where's your plan? Where's your field storming plan? We didn't send it in yet. You got to send it in. Yeah, and you scream at them until they send it in. So everybody has to send it in. You're part of the conference. You have to send it in. Can you have a requirement of like your security has to keep people back for 60 seconds once the game ends and then let them go? And if you don't, like, that's what this is. They said is we get, if you get the people off, you can storm. So they're not saying no storming. Do you need fines to do this or is it plan enough? Make sure you have a plan, execute the plan to your best of your ability, hold the people back as long as you can, but we're not going to fine anybody if it doesn't go exactly right. Well, I, I think that you can have fines for sure. I think that one big thing would be have your plan in place, institute your plan. If there's incident, if you don't execute your plan at a high enough level, like I think that is on the university. I think that is on the football program. I think that is on the athletic department. I don't have an issue with finding somebody. If if you do end up in a position where there's fans, you know, mouthing off to players and getting in their face and shoving them and things like that, like I, I think that that's something that you can punish, right? But it comes down to, I think, uh, you know, you can, I think, punish schools for not doing it right. And you can set boundaries for what is the right way to do this. 
But the idea of just saying, well, let's not have any of this. Let's not do any of this is just not a realistic or reasonable pathway. And, and one thing too is, for example, um, some games are going to be hard. Uh, Tennessee won on a last second field goal. You couldn't have necessarily been super duper prepared for that. But in some of these cases, for example, uh, you know, you can be in a position where you say, let's, let's crowd the opposing team. Let's get them moved towards the tunnel so they can get off the field expeditiously. And then, you know, you can have security guards around that area. But like, I, th- I think that you can do that. I-, I think that you can absolutely do that. You know, one, <laughs> one of my favorite field storming moments that I can remember was back in 2021 when I was covering Baylor versus Oklahoma. And I don't know if you remember this game. This was the game where Dave Aranda called a timeout with seconds remaining to kick a field goal just in case point differential came into the Big 12 title game uh, calculation. And so everybody stormed the fields. And then the announcer was like, no, 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 no. Get back, get back. The game's not over. We're still doing stuff. And so they had to go back. But they did it. Like, you can do it. It's it's not like these crowds are just, like, rabid. It's not like these crowds are just, you know, filled with insane people. Like, you can you can have some control over these crowds, absolutely. Uh, whether it is, like you said, give give them a minute after the game ends, let it clear. You know, and then and then maybe you let them go. But I, I think that it's much more about needing to have a more robust plan of attack of how to deal with this than it is trying to eliminate field storming because that's one of the things that makes college football different than other sports. So I like where you landed, Kamish. Everyone's required to have an actionable plan. Let's not have fines ahead of time. Let's not have a scale of fines, but we will fine for egregious lack of execution of your plan. And we're going to try to hold, because one of the things, too, is when a crowd wants to storm a field, what actually can be more dangerous is trying to stop them from storming the field, right? Now you are lining up people where, oh, if you put up fences or whatever, now people are getting pushed. If they're going to come, you got to sort of let them come. So I think part of what the SEC is trying to do is like trying to get it out there, trying to scare people. Hey, 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 you're going to get fined if you storm, knowing they're not going to stop it, but maybe it'll slow it down a little bit. But I don't think they need to have a fine structure in place because I agree we don't want to take that away from college football. And again, I, 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 I don't think it's, I don't think it's egregious bodily harm that is being risked by the visiting team and the officials at this point. Okay, I think you did a good job. I think you're a candidate. I don't. There's not an opening for a commissioner right now of a conference because all the jobs seem to have been filled. But I think you've put your best foot forward here, Shahan. And I think in the next round of commissioner moves. I think you definitely would be able to throw your hat in the ring. Would you want the job? <laughs> um, I mean, I want the salary. I definitely want the salary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that it's it would be something to consider. I I would not consider myself a salesman. That's probably uh, the big thing. But I like I think that I'd be a pretty good traditional commissioner when it comes to like the uh, when it comes to like the the management of this stuff, like I, I feel like I'd probably be a better deputy commissioner than maybe mm. like an actual commissioner. But I don't know. At the same time, I do I, I do love branding. So who knows? I don't know. Sure, okay. why not? I'll I'll take a job if if uh, is Tony Petiti sticking around for a long time? Like I don't know yes. how this stuff works. <laughs> maybe Kevin Warren left such a mess. He's like I'm out. I don't. I'm I don't. Out. But then I got to negotiate uh, television stuff because apparently NBC wants more. They're going to put more on Peacock. I have to tell 
some some Midwesterners that they're going to be cold. I, I was under the impression that Midwesterners liked being cold. I thought that that's what they said to everybody else. But no, now we're going to play at night. Oh, no, I can't believe that. So, you know, I, I don't want to have to have that conversation with people. All, all I can think about now <laughs> is Commissioner Shahan and the head of NBC, the head the head person for NBC waking up in their bed with the head of a peacock in the sheets with them. <laughs> Oh, you want to put your games on Peacock, do you? Make him an offer he can't refuse. Ah, ah, ah. Uh, no Peacocks were harmed in the filming of this podcast. All right, that'll do it for this episode. We've got more stuff coming next week. We always appreciate you guys making us part of your college football fandom for now. For Shahan J. Haraja of CBSSports.com, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.